This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. This is Drew Dockin. Today, I am joined with Sagar Joshi, who is the co-founder and managing partner at Drawing Capital. He's been on in the past uh, for several podcasts, and today uh, I'll be interviewing him and our chief investment strategist, Tim Parati, on a wide variety of market-facing issues and some tech issues. Before we begin, I should note that this recording is for informational purposes and is not an offer nor solicitation to buy, hold, or sell securities. An investment in any strategy, including the strategies described herein, involves a degree of risk. Past performance of these strategies is not necessarily indicative of future results. There is the possibility of loss, including the loss of principal. Any projections, forecasts, or estimates are speculative in nature and are based upon certain assumptions. No representations are made as to the accuracy of such forward-looking statements. Please see Drawing Capital's website for additional disclosures. To learn more about Drawing Capital's research, you can sign up for Drawing Capital's newsletter at drawingcapital.substack.com. Sagar, I'd kind of like to start with you first. Uh, when you're looking at investing principles, a lot like the marshmallow test from Stanford, right, where you always focus on delayed gratification and the kid who waits for the marshmallows to accumulate uh, does the best in life. But that's been the case over the last few decades, you know, when we've seen declining interest rates. In, in the world where Amazon and companies like that were the norm. But right now, in a world of increasing interest rates, do you think tech investors should be really focusing on comp- companies that are initially profitable, at least in the more immediate term? Sure, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm delighted to join this webinar with with both uh, Drew, you, and, and Tim as well. So congrats uh, uh, for uh, getting every, everything together and welcome everyone here as well. So uh, this Stanford research experiment that you reference has really many applications, both in life and in social psychology. Uh, delayed gratification is related to resistance to temptation, which really implicitly illustrates itself, uh, I, I believe, in, in three ways in investing. And then uh, I'll get to your uh, follow-up question regarding uh, tech and, and tech investing. So I think the first is really there, there is a trade-off between the attraction for short-term greed versus the desire for long-term value creation. And I think it's an important distinction that also distinguishes price flippers from investors. And so often long-term value creation in markets is predicated on strong business performance, financial fundamentals, lowering discount rates, rising free cash flow per share, and a variety of other factors, many of which uh, uh, I'm sure both of you are, are very well, well, well aware of uh, along with our audience here. The second, uh, I think there's a concept of FOMO versus JOMO. Uh, I'll kind of unbundle these two acronyms. So many of you in the audience are, are likely aware uh, of the FOMO acronym, which stands for fear of missing out. Uh, in contrast, JOMO stands for joy of missing out. And so what I I'm, have really come to the realization that distraction can dilute while focus can increase the level of excellence. And so FOMO may catalyze the chase of trendy narratives, while JOMO can offer prudent, disciplined investment processes that ignores the so-called, quote, trendy topic and, and focuses on long-term compounding of returns. And I think the third component uh, in, uh, in relation to your, your question about the research experiment, uh, there is uh, delayed gratifications related to time. 
And so the value of time and its positive relationship with the compounding of positive returns are of course, are of course important co concepts in wealth accumulation. And so for example, let's say a 12% compounded annual growth rate or 12% CAGR over one year is really just a 12% increase, which uh, you know it, it is nice for one year, while a 12% CAGR over 10 years nearly triples the initial investment. So that's really the, the, the power of compounding returns, if you will. Um, I, I guess for the second part of your question um, uh, regarding tech stocks, it is true that over the past year, tightening monetary policy has contributed to rising discount rates on long duration risk assets, uh, which has led to large price declines in these types of assets, which include unprofitable tech stocks. So in the short term, supply and demand dynamics, uh, along with changes in liquidity and sentiment, really influence current prices. Uh, and notably, the repricing of risk and re-rating of multiples has occurred in several asset classes, not just tech stocks, as, as both of you are, are probably very well aware of. So for example, as, as just as a quick uh, data point, so in September of 2021, so really September of last year, there were some moments in time where the effective yield on the high yield corporate bond index was actually below 4%, um, and which is pretty remarkable, right? And now if we fast forward about a year later uh, to certainly last week, and if we see pricing this week, the one year treasury yield was above 4%. So that's really a remarkable shift in risk-adjusted returns there. Um, and so that really, I think, captures uh, the sentiment of, of what's happening broadly in tech stocks. Happy to dive a little bit deeper uh, in regards to growth and, and, and a few other factors, uh, along with the uh, marshmallow test and the experiment that you mentioned there. Yeah, I guess the follow-up on growth would be, I mean, what do you think about the risk of slower nominal you know, GDP growth for an extended period of time? And how do you think that's going to affect valuations? Sure, it's, uh, it's a great question. And so in regards uh, to that very very topic of that trade-off of uh, economic growth and valuations, and sometimes they're correlated, sometimes there is a trade-off there. Uh, some cyclical companies that have economically sensitive earnings may have difficulty in significantly increasing those earnings in an environment that uh, I think it is very obvious we're experiencing a very sharp slowdown in economic growth with a, either a likely or already in, in some cases, an upcoming uh, economic recession. Uh, so this situation combined with the macro environment of restrictive monetary policy really impacts risk sentiment in financial markets, uh, which is likely bearish for current price multiples, uh, as well as price action. I mean, you can see this just over the past, uh, you know, last two weeks alone uh, in, across a broad array of equity markets, uh, emerging markets, uh, fixed income, et cetera. Uh, now, that being said, and, and as a possible counterintuitive point of interest in the future, low future nominal GDP rates may actually re-enable, in some cases, premium valuations for premium high-quality assets with global expansion. Because while it may be true that there might be low nominal GDP in America, there are still countries uh, that are growing rapidly well, well quicker. Uh, and, and so uh, and it may not necessarily show up in the next year, next two years or, or so. But if we look at, let's say, 5, 10, 15-year time horizons, if those nominal GDP growth rates are higher then companies with global expansion, um, they can choose to expand their business operations in other countries with higher economic growth environments in the future in order to increase their, uh, those revenues there. And what are your thoughts on the issue, Tim? Um, do you think that, you know, investors should be prior prioritizing a little bit more immediate growth? Yeah. I mean, look, my overall long-term view as drew you certainly well know is that inflation is going to be persistent now in the very near term I, I believe the fed is going to win the fed is 
in the process of crushing the housing market. We are going into a recession, uh, and in every recession, interest rates goes down and inf um, inflation goes down uh, as a result of higher interest rates. But I, I think that through this cycle and into longer term, uh, we're going to have sticky inflation for all the reasons that I've talked about ad nauseum. And as a result, I think discount rates probably should be lower. Look, if you're an unprofitable company and you get into a difficult market like this, you got to think about, well, are capital markets going to stay open for me always? And the question I have for Zagra then is, do you think about the companies that you own, these growth companies that will, and I think you make a very good point, that if you can find idiosyncratic global growth in a slow growth world, you're going to make a hell of a lot of money. But do those companies need to think about tightening up their belts and their business models and maybe sacrificing a little bit of growth, at least in the near term, in order to make sure they can produce a little bit of cash flow so they're not relying on the capital markets? Sure. I think that's an excellent insight. Thank you, uh, Tim, there. In terms of the uh, trade-off there between growth and, and profitability uh, for, for several companies, uh, it, it's certainly a really good question. Certainly, I've thought a lot about it, and I think many investors, both in, in public and private markets, uh, have been considering that, that topic of interest. And so when revenue growth was based largely in growth in sales and marketing expenses with low contribution margins or even low or negative unit economics, then then really that that is uh, uh, led to, uh, let's put it, let, let's possibly suboptimal, right? Uh, in a sense of when there's high liquidity and there's a lot of uh, capital investment flowing in, then uh, easier fundraise and easy to deploy immediately in sales and marketing, uh, especially to show high revenue growth, but uh, ultimately margins matter, right? And then, so now that there's a focus on profitability that may impair future revenue growth rates for a subset of companies that had that trade-off, between profitable growth versus growth at any cost. Uh, and so uh, that being said, of course, uh, investing is uh, all about the future, not, not the past. Uh, and numbers, uh, not just narratives, matter, right? And so we uh, can see this, whether it's uh, in a variety of different uh, metrics there. Uh, and since investing in the innovation economy has uncertainty around both the validity and future impact, then short-term price movements can certainly be a roller coaster ride. Um, and to Tim's point there, there are certain, certain tech companies that uh, create their own liquidity, if you will. They, they have profitable businesses. They uh, have a lot of operating cash flows. A lot of the big tech companies uh, fall in that category uh, versus there's other sets of companies that, that really need ongoing liquidity, whether it's from the equity markets via secondary raises, whether it's uh, large uh, uh, a, a large uh, kind of uh, whether it's bias or necessity to do uh, equity-based compensation as opposed to cash comp, uh, that uh, stock-based compensation uh, expense is, is certainly uh, a, a large expense in, you know, on many of the income statements there. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, they may uh, or, or they may decide to do something a little bit more structured, whether it's a convertible note, debt, uh, equity, uh, hybrid, et cetera there. So really, I think there's there's that dichotomy or, or divergence, if you will, between companies that need liquidity versus companies that already have it and can create demand uh, in their stock. Uh, and in some cases, some companies are in such a strong uh, kind of uh, have, have such a strong balance sheet that they can afford to even do share buybacks, even in this uh, kind of slowdown and recessionary environment there. Um, so that that's I think there there is a divergence across. It's not just 
uh, grouping all, all tech companies as, as one, there's certainly divergence and, and that divergence creates dispersion in, in returns there as well. Um, so I, I think um, that that really is, is the case. Uh, now, furthermore, in terms of there, there are some companies, though, that didn't really have revenue growth solely based on sales and marketing expense. They were product like growth companies that really had really strong tailwinds, uh, really high growth rates in their total addressable markets. And so those companies that are still delivering very high results, even in this environment, they're not making that trade off. They're having really high uh, customer fit with their with their customers or consumers and their users. Uh, then that wasn't really predicated on uh, spending on sales teams, but rather the product was so superior that it, it's being uh, captured by c uh, consumers and customers. Uh, and that really shows up in business performance and financial fundamentals, et cetera, there. I'd like to kind of bring up the conversation to China. Obviously, China's been in a zero COVID policy feedback loop. Uh, it's taken a huge downturn to its economy. Tech companies like Tencent, Alibaba, JD.com have kind of posted weaker numbers. So this question, I guess, is a few parts. First, I'd like to see what your thoughts are. Uh, and we'll start with Tim on this one. I mean, how much of China's economic woes are related to COVID versus a stricter regulatory environment? One. Additionally, how much of like the deceleration to energy costs can be attributed to China's economic slowdown and what does it mean when they pick up? And and lastly, do we as you know, the United States want to make to a commitment to China in things with like technology controls and transfer issues and the like? Yeah, why don't I take the first two and then I'll turn over turn it over to, to Sagar on the last one and then I'll have comment there too. Look, it's hard to distinguish between how much of China's problems is the property implosion and it is a property implosion and zero COVID. And, and who knows exactly what Xi and the CCP is thinking in terms of continuing with some of these COVID, uh, zero COVID policies, which are really starting to at least, um, they're really starting to, to get rid of those. Uh, but I mean, you have to put this property implosion in perspective. I mean, City was out either this week or last week talking about 30% bad loans. I mean, you're talking about a, a double and a triple of the worst areas of the um, of the great financial crisis in the United States and Europe and in Australia and, and all over the, the Western world, not including Australia. But I mean, it, it is a it is a disaster, uh, the, the Chinese property market. And, you know, it's 70 percent of Chinese consumers wealth is invested in housing. So I, I don't think you can overstate how much of a problem the Chinese have with the property market. And I think you have to go back and remember with the great financial crisis, how important the wealth effect was. Look, my biggest asset, most people's biggest asset is their home and the equity they have in their home. When you lose that equity uh, and God forbid, all of a sudden rates go up in, in a way that you can't cover your costs, you know, that has a massive wealth effect and that has a massive consumer confidence effect. And to that, to, to that, point, I think we're still in the early stages of, of seeing what the property contagion is going to look like in China. On the energy side, uh, look, I, I want to kind of stay constructive on energy because I do have the thesis that we've had such a massive long-term underinvestment in energy development uh, that energy markets are going to stay relatively tight and are relatively tight. Um, so I do think that 
the end of zero COVID policies will create some increased demand. I think that the driving miles in the U.S. on the gasoline side stay sticky. I think in Europe, what you're going to see is a decent amount of heating oil replacing nat gas. So I, I, I'm pretty constructive on energy here, even going into uh, a global financial crisis. And then that last part on tech controls, let me turn it over to Sagar. Sure, a great, a great commentary, uh, Tim. So thank you there. Uh, and so uh, in regards to that last question about tech controls, uh, uh, and and related topics there from Drew. Uh, th there is certainly a large complexity for for many reasons uh, with these uh, with these concepts, and and they really lead to large consequences. Um, obviously geopolitically, but also economically, in technological competition, in trade relations, and also in social culture. So this is not just a one topic or, or one piece of technology. This is a, a broad array of situations that, that is occurring. Uh, different countries can have different priorities, obviously, uh, which can really be a source of potential conflict or possible misalignment of interest, particularly when those priorities uh, diverge or, or directly conflict with each other. Uh, and then additionally, the underlying cause of the large complexity and possible conflict is the rising uh, the rising nature of these countries in that they both collaborate and compete uh, with the superpower countries. So in some cases, they're, they're very collaborative and, and very reliant um, and, and not just countries, but individual companies as well. Uh, but in some uh, cases, they also directly compete. And, and so they have this uh, kind of uh, twofold uh, relationship there. Uh, and then with different countries having different priorities, this can contribute to a change uh, in some cases in the existing world order, as, as we're already starting to see some development of uh, different currencies or digital assets uh, uh, being talked about um, uh, and the like. So it's not, this is not just a, uh, just a currency situation, especially a lot of emerging markets uh, are, are facing this um, and not just emerging markets, also uh, currency dynamics in, in, in Europe and, and the British pound relative to the dollar, uh, that, that will uh, prompt some discussion there. Uh, and so, I think uh, the in terms of what you mentioned about like a written agreement and the like, I think there, there's going to be uh, there, there's going to have to be some type of multilateral and multi-industry agreements. Uh, that that is going to be a necessity uh, because the written agreements also enable enforcement. Uh, so I think that that's a bigger thing too. It, it's not just having some type of verbal um, uh, agreement between two leaders, which may or may not even be uh, in power, uh, particularly in our election cycle, where we have changing. Uh, dynamics in, in both Congress and, and the administration, either every four or eight years, uh, in the case of the administration. Um, and so I think the, the final co component there, too, is, is China is the world's second largest economy by nominal GDP. And, and so um, there's some discussion about even eventually they becoming number one, whether it's number one, number two, uh, in, in the next decade ahead, they are a huge economic superpower. They also are very, very focused on technology, but they're also uh, focused on a lot of other renewable uh, capital investment and a lot of other things as well. Um, and, and so there's a lot of competing interests uh, that are involved, not just manufacturing, not just technology, but um, a, a lot of other areas uh, in that category there. Um, I, I'd like to also double click, if, if, if it's okay, double click on uh, uh, Tim's comment. I, I think it's a really great one regarding the uh, underinvestment. I think in some cases, this may be seen as a bit of a hot take. Uh, in uh, some markets, but uh, I think when you look at the realities on the ground, and I'm sure Tim, you, you do a lot of a lot of work and a lot of research in this category. Um, uh, th this is this really relates to uh, not just the commodity price and oil prices, but also in regards to inflation. 
And so the current energy crisis in Europe and, and really the high oil prices in America revealed, uh, in my opinion, a broad energy underinvestment, uh, uh, to, to use Tim's words, in both the carbon economy as well as the green economy. Um, and, and so this is a, a, a twofold issue. This is not just um, this is not intended to be a blame on one industry or the other, but this is both in the carbon and in the green uh, areas. And so, of course, higher commodity prices can contribute to inflation, particularly when input production costs rise there as well. Let me just, Sagar, let me just follow up on that. Are, are you concerned, though, just from the geopolitical idiosyncratic risk that politicians, whether on the right or the left in the United States, are going to continue with some of these export controls. They're going to prove that they're not, you know, soft on China because that's going to work going into the midterms and it's going to work in 2024. Do you worry about being long companies with 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 heavy exposure in China just on on the risk that there is this kind of geopolitical tit for tat? I, I think in some cases, yes and no. And I'll uh... Uh, that's not intended to be like vague or, or um, uh, kind of uh, diminish the question. It's a very good one. I, I think uh, the, the yes and no, I'll kind of do double click a little bit, is that in, in some cases, if there uh, is a curtailing of uh, IPOs, uh, particularly in ADR listings, right, that has material impacts where if there's just no capital flows or if ADR just gets simply removed or become uninvestable, um, I mean, no investor, uh, in my opinion, really wants to see a zero on, on their investment, obviously, right, from a market cap perspective. And and there there was some risk, especially uh, earlier on in the year, where there was a lot of talk about uh, ADR listings and and, and repricing and, and a lot of those risks. And as soon as geopolitical risks um, increase, uh, logically or mathematically, that can show up uh, via rising discount rates. And, and as we all know from DCFs, right, or rising discount rates on the same cash flows, um, can can impact uh, the current and, and present values uh, of these companies there. Uh, now, on the other side, though, I, I do think that there is a, an opportunity to work uh, closely uh, with manufacturing partners there. Of course, you have companies like Apple that that have huge manufacturing uh, areas um, uh, in China, but they're also expanding uh, across Southeast Asia, India, et cetera there. So I think uh, while geopolitical risk is a concern, uh, it also depends, I think, company by company. Uh, and then also this idea of um, uh, what do we call like uh, uh, whether it's uh, onshoring or nearshoring or all, all of these uh, all of these terms, while very good, that I, 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 these are really good attributes of re-promoting uh, uh, American manufacturing, particularly in, in knowledge work and, and the like. Uh, there's also that reality that let's say just spending billions of dollars on a chip uh, plant is not going to produce chips tomorrow. Um, and so there is that reliance on Taiwan Semi um, and a lot of other fabs, uh, it, whether it's in Taiwan um, or, or elsewhere, where there is that heavy reliance, particularly as we see some of these uh, hardware companies. Uh, I'll just name two just for kind of as an informational source. But AMD and NVIDIA, they are fabulous companies, which means they they make a lot of the design and everything, and then they ship it to, uh, uh, or they really ship the design concept to uh, Taiwan Semi, and then they uh, do manufacturing along with other partners, uh, and then that's how they distribute. Versus Intel has uh, fabrication and, and, and or sorry, they have fabs and, and manufacturing capabilities on their own, and they also partner uh, uh, elsewhere. So there is that divergence of, on one hand, it was great to outsource kind of the high capex, high cyclicality, um, uh, and really become more of like a software and hardware uh, linked business. On the other hand, that did reduce some of the resiliency when there was dependence on other 
other parties there. Yeah, well, the market certainly agrees with you on the Intel side. You know, where the pressure is, though, is just that it's a national security issue, right? You can't make missiles without semiconductors, you know, and, and I think that is where you're going to see more and more, especially on the especially on the semi side. I, I think you'll see continued support at the state and federal level for the reshoring and onshoring of some semiconductor manufacturing. But you make a good point. It's not like you break ground and, and you're, uh, you know, you're churning out chips in a couple of weeks. Oh, I think a lot of this is part of the broader part of like economic nationalism, right? I mean, it was happening before COVID. It's been exacerbated since um, trade policy is less free, industrial policy is a lot more muscular, FDI has been all over the place, and people are less likely to have immigration or countries, you know, less likely to kind of attract foreign talent. Um, I, I guess in, in light of all that, how are countries in corporations reacting to these seismic changes. And Sagar, you in particular, be fascinated to hear from Drawing Capital's perspective, is it tougher for a firm like you to attract uh, foreign talent due to some you know, restrictions to immigration on top of you know, the industrial policy and the trade and everything else? Yeah, certainly a, a, a multifaceted question there in terms of a lot of different topics. So I'll kind of tackle them one by one. And then of course I'll hand it over to Tim and then we can have uh, a, a night discussion there uh, back and forth as well. So I guess from a, uh, or I shouldn't say, I guess, I, this is my, my personal viewpoint is that from a patriotic perspective, there's certainly a logical desire to recruit and retain the best players and talent around the world to play for Team America. I, I think that's just full stop. That's uh, really, that that's the idea of uh, being pro-America there, uh, regardless of, you know, affiliation or, or, or in terms of um, political affiliation, et cetera, there. Uh, Team America, it should be the winning team uh, as long as you're an American citizen, right? Uh, now, that being said, uh, in terms of immigration and a lot of other uh, factors there as well, uh, immigration, unfortunately, has become a highly complex and politicized topic, which has broad implications for American demographics, population control, business formation. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Inflation, economy, social culture, et cetera. Uh, I, I think uh, Tim really had a really great webinar uh, or a segment in, in, I think it was last week's or the prior week's webinar um, uh, regarding inflation. Uh, uh, I remember him, him mentioning, uh, I tuned in a little bit and you mentioned the rising level of populism and nationalism may actually hinder progress uh, on immigration issues, unfortunately. Uh, and what that, what seems to be lost in the politicization of immigration as a policy topic is that diversity is a winning formula. And so whether it's diversity of views um, uh, or, or diverse, diversity of a lot of different areas, that, that really enables discussion, debate, and nuanced ideas, and often better outcomes. And so we may not necessarily uh, agree or disagree on every single topic, but at least when we have that breadth and diversity of ideas, uh, hopefully we lead to better outcomes there. Uh, and so really the advocacy of inclusion and diversity is both, uh, I, I think, the right thing to do, but also in many cases, the most profitable approach uh, I mean, it's no surprise that many of these leading tech companies have very diverse backgrounds, are immigrant-founded, uh, um, and uh, and have a lot of a, a lot of global talent uh, that they that they pool together there. Um, and so, I guess uh, leading on on that train of thought, there there's a reason why several multinationals uh, and tech companies have global offices or, or the availability of remote work, which really enables them to hire. Uh, both really talented individuals across multiple geographies, and then also hedge against the current immigration policies, both domestically uh, as well as other countries. Um, and so I think what this really leads to uh, in terms of uh, wh where, where these building blocks are ending up is that 
many of these large companies are really building communities inside their companies. Uh, and that really grows their tribal knowledge, uh, it grows their collaborative benefits inside these large companies, uh, almost uh, akin to a way, in some cases, like a university, where they're really great aggregators uh, and network multipliers of both intellectual capital uh, and people, but all, uh, along with thinking in the case of companies versus universities, of course, companies uh, have that focus on you know, profitability eventually um, or, or currently, uh, as well as a lot of other factors there as well. Yeah, you know, you're right about corporations doing a, a good job of bringing in the term is offshores like, oh, I've got I've got a new offshore uh, for my for an assistant is, is a term that you'll always hear uh, on Wall Street. But unfortunately, you know, your point about diversity is not one that is particularly well embraced by one half of the, of the political spectrum in the United States. And I like I was heartened to see Liz Truss uh, say the other day that. We need more immigrants in the UK. Uh, now, whether or not she'll get any support from her party on that, at least that, at least seeing an acknowledgement of it, maybe she's testing the waters on that to see how that's going to go. Uh, you know, you're only a couple of years post-Brexit, so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the UK. You know, in the United States, Biden, I don't think people realize the executive branch has a lot of latitude uh on bringing in much more uh visas all different forms of visas uh where you could alleviate some of the lack of you know larry fink talks about the 2.1 million missing people uh if you just projected from pre-17 uh trend on legal immigration we'd have 2.1 million more workers uh it'll be interesting to see if biden at any point it'll probably be after the midterms because it doesn't work well politically it's not going to help democrats running for senate in pennsylvania in ohio in wisconsin in nevada in Arizona. so you know there's a reason why biden doesn't do anything on growing legal immigration right now because it doesn't poll well nuance does not poll well uh so but we'll see after the midterms if you come out, if, if the administration were to come out and say, how about a merit-based system? How about we really grow immigration through a merit-based system like Canada, like Australia, and see if you could get some traction with that? That would be a great thing for the country. I just think it's the Democrats see it as a political risk. And, and don't forget, uh, while it was you know, a Republican administration under Trump that changed legal immigration trends, Biden hasn't done a lot to change that. Uh, so it, it, it unfortunately is it, there's this safety valve that we could have from an inflation point of view where we could bring in all of this talent and Sagra makes the great point. How look at Silicon Valley, look at the founders, look at uh, how many of those people are immigrants, um, either from Asia or from Eastern Europe or from wherever. Uh, so it, it really is, uh, that really is frustrating. I'm just not particularly optimistic um that there is going to be an embrace of more legal immigration and lastly you know it all kind of relates to productivity when we're looking at you know ai and machine learning has that generated as much productivity as expected and then let's kind of finish on the work from home front you know do you think that's a decline in productivity or an increase or do you think we're kind of neutral um, when all it's all said and done from remote work and uh, I'll start with, uh, I think we'll start with you, Sagar. Okay, sounds good. Um, I'll enter the, I guess, the remote work concept first. And then I think that's uh, kind of really interesting for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, and then uh, tackle your remaining questions there. So I guess uh, regarding work from home and remote work, uh, one 
popular perspective that, that I've heard uh, is that it's easier to hire talent, yet more difficult to manage the talent in remote work settings, um, particularly when there's a variety of uh, not only just geographies, but time zones, uh, different regulatory requirements across different countries uh, and, and the like there as well. Uh, and there's also a discussion on if work uh, efficiency and, and, and product creativity are broadly either better uh, in remote work versus in office environments, along with the savings on work commutes and added employee flexibility for remote work environments. So I think when we take a step back uh, in discussing uh, productivity or, or, or flexibility uh, in the remote work, hybrid work, or in office, uh, I, I think it's when we talk about, uh, quote, better, um, it, it, who is it better for? Or is it better for whom? Is it better for the company? Is it better for the employee? Is it better for the contractor? Is it better for the community uh, and uh, corporate office uh, uh, leases? Like, uh, I, I think that uh, sometimes it gets lost in discussion of it's not just broadly, uh, it may be broadly better, or maybe in some cases a net benefit, but then still hurts a particular constituency there. So I think there, there, there's that nuance. Uh, Tim made a great point about, I mean, nuance thinking is, is, is so important, yet unfortunately, you know, do, doesn't pull well. I think that was, that was a brilliant line there. Um, and so additionally, several companies have really recently implemented uh, this like return to office uh, RTO mandate for knowledge workers, citing uh, collaboration or cybersecurity or teamwork or productivity. Um, all, all really focus on a necessity for either improved efficiency or productive output instead of just merely kind of zooming around a laptop and, and for doing other reasons, uh, uh, quiet quitting is also one of these other trends that has come up recently. Uh, now, coming back to your first question though, regarding uh, all these technologies, really, I think uh, where, where this really matters and, and uh, unfortunately recessions re reveal uh, a, a lot of things um, and, and a lot of uh, excess and waste and misallocation of capital uh, typically doesn't get revealed at the top. It gets revealed closer when there's there's more economic pain. Uh, un unfortunately, that's just the way it seems to be. A lot of cycles uh, operate there. Um, uh, that being said, I think uh, coming back to your question about technology is a very good one. I think really it's converting the buzzword to a business model. That is the key. Uh, and so it's not just um, having a buzzword or, or it, something being a neat science project or an intellectual exercise in academia and research, but rather, how does a product actually help the consumer? Is, it, is there significant product-led growth that uh, consumers or customers, in the case of whether it's B2B or B2C, um, how is that really uh, creating better outcomes for the customer? Um, in the case of AI and ML and other data science techniques, that can really make things a lot, make a lot of things cheaper, faster, better, and more convenient. And so there is functional utility either for the company or for the consumer. Um, and so one perspective is the rise of these disruptive technologies and exponential innovation in some areas uh, that, that has really happened, particularly uh, uh, in software. But unfortunately, there's only incremental improvement in other areas. And so there's validity in arguments on, on both sides on whether it's technological stagnation or exponential innovation. Um, and so really when more innovation occurs in the world of bits compared to the world of atoms, so kind of said differently, digital economy versus physical economy, then there's no surprise that software stock indices have performed better than the Dow Jones uh, over the past five, 10 and, and 20 year time periods. So uh, really it's, I think uh, in, in summary, it's is something a buzzword or a business model, who does it benefit? Does it benefit consumers or does it benefit um, digital advertisers or does it, uh, does it benefit just a company and its profitability? Uh, that's one component. Um, 
there's 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 a lot of new development here that that's going to also create things that were just seemingly not possible before, uh, particularly with a, a lot of machine learning techniques related to uh, natural language processing, uh, textual analysis, uh, and a lot of unsupervised and unstructured data analysis there. So th that's a that's I think an entirely uh, a different kind of topic. Happy to discuss it, but uh, kind of I'll probably pause there uh, to gain uh, Tim's input as well. Yeah, I mean, I've got a pretty unsatisfying answer on the productivity front, which is that I don't think we know the direction of productivity right now. I mean, we do know that the productivity data has been terrible. We know that we've put up two quarters in a row of really weak productivity. We know that the trend since 2010 has been of a productivity growth level that's been about half of the previous 20 years. Um, so I, I, I think the jury is still out on whether or not work from home will beget productivity and whether or not AI, ML will generate meaningful productivity. On the, on the latter, it's probably too early to say, but it matters and it matters a lot because one thing we, you know, GDP is just workforce growth plus productivity and we know that we're going to be constrained on workforce growth in in the United States, in Europe and in China, Japan, Korea all have really challenging demographic issues. So we need productivity. You know, when people look at Japan and, and how has Japan survived with negative workforce growth, they've had really, really good productivity growth. But a lot of that has been because they were able to export labor um, through the 80s, 90s and 2000s to China. That is no longer gonna be the case. So we need real productivity growth. And the one thing that I think is positive is labor expensive labor will beget more investment that begets productivity growth. So that is a long cycle thing. But I think one good thing that will come out of this, these super tight labor markets uh, will be greater investment in increasing productivity. And that will be a good thing for financial markets. But it will take a while in my, in, in my, in, in my opinion. Yeah, great. Thanks for the conversation to gents. Uh, if we could, I'd like to end. Uh, we saw, you know, Whipsaw Day in the market on Tuesday. I mean, you know, S&P's down over 20%. The UK is really behaving like an emerging market right now. I mean, if you were to be looking at investing on a personal level, what are you looking at? Where are you allocating your money during this time? Cheap I'll soccer. I would be... Um, looking for rallies there will be rallies look I, I i am starting to believe that it is as tough as the fed talks is that when we really get into meaningfully negative gdp as the unemployment rate really starts to go up and look you are going to have headline cpi come down not just because of energy but because of freight rates because of some goods deflation and 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 retailer discounting and so forth you are going to see headline uh, inflation come down. And I do think there's going to be a hell of a lot of pressure on the Fed to slow things down. Now, my opinion is that the problem isn't really the Fed's response, but what the Fed is responding to, which is sticky long-term structural inflation. So my point is that you are going to get rallies when you hear Fed speakers, besides what you heard from Evans today uh, about Maybe we should maybe we should slow it down. Maybe we should wait and see a little bit. Everybody knows the Milton Friedman quote about you know uh, uh, what monetary policy has long and variable lags. 
<clears throat> other, you're going to start to hear that, I think, from other Fed speakers in a weaker economy. So my only point is you're going to get rallies. Um, and I think those rallies are opportunities uh, to incur less risk. Great points there. Uh, uh, kind of uh, adding to the uh, discussion for, uh, I guess, my opinion for, for for what it's worth there, I think uh, there's uh, volatility and, and, and macro uh, and interest rates and inflation, right? Those are really the four uh, key topics uh, along with geopolitical and a lot of other topics there as well. Uh, I think there's always uh, trends and, and, and buzzwords throughout every cycle. Uh, I, I think that the key component is navigating the market cycle. I've been increasingly focused uh, on this concept of JOMO, uh, this this idea of, uh, it's, it sounds odd to even say, but like the joy of missing out, which is having that rigorous discipline process, uh, following a financial plan. I mean, these things kind of sound so basic sometimes when we say it out loud, uh, but they really do matter. I think in terms of compared to FOMO, where it can really lead to uh, chasing a lot of high priced, bubbly type environments, uh, I think there was a difference that, uh, Many investors uh, have come to realize that there's a difference between in investing versus, uh, you know, one of the most unprecedented expansionary monetary uh, expansions. And now uh, we're uh, in a completely different environment, right? We are in a restrictive uh, monetary policy environment. Um, stimulus is, is, from the fiscal side, et cetera, uh, is going to be sporadic. Uh, that's what it seems. And, and of course, there's midterm elections, a variety of other concepts. The, the main focus being that rising dollars higher uh, uh, commodity prices or, or oil inflation, wherever uh, we want to call it, uh, this is generally bearish for corporate earnings. Um, and, and it may not necessarily show up in the next month, next week, um, or, or even next six months, but uh, there is likelihood that corporate earnings uh, in next few months, uh, especially when quarterly results start coming out, uh, we're already starting to see some, some talks of slowdowns uh, among CFOs, some uh, uh, and CEOs are discussing this. Now, that being said, I, I think where, uh, like I mentioned previously, I, I think we, we all echo this, which is investing is about the future, right? It's not just about, there, there's a lot There's a lot of ways to say a lot of pessimism about current environments. I, I think uh, in terms of managing volatility, uh, three ways to do it. One is just simply reduce the volatility. You can hedge it. You can just reduce the risk and less volatile, or uh, reduce the exposure and less volatile assets, et cetera. Uh, the second component, which is volatility acceptance, which is, um, Really, just accept that you know uh, things uh, oscillate up and down. Uh, accept those uh, as a component of investing in risk assets. Uh, or the third is using volatility as an opportunity for those that are long-term patient investors um, that have very long time horizons. The, the question, is, let's say for someone who's in uh, their 30s or, or 40s, right? Where it's uh, I'm not trying to pick on any one uh, age group per se, but let, let's say if you're in that category. Um, and it's a retirement account, a 30 year old with a, or like a 40 year old uh, with a retirement account with a prospect age of retiring closer to 60, 65, 70, where, uh, wherever it is, they've got a multi-decade time horizon. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important component. Is there's some people that try to like time the top, time the bottom, et cetera. I think the bigger thing is uh, what, are, what is a plan? What is the target return in mind? And for long-term patient investors, I mean, there is definitely opportunities out there. There's a lot of secular tailwinds out there. Um, uh, the belief that, you know, software is going away. I, I, I don't necessarily believe that at all. I think software is only going to enable a lot of, uh, a lot of things, a lot, enable a lot of growth rates. Um, and, and the curve on, uh, the inflection points on a lot of topics, uh, is, is there, it's just a question of being a long-term patient investor, riding out the volatility, picking your spots when there is, 
distressed prices for premium assets. Um, and, and we'll see how things eventually shake out. Um, and kind of one final point is kind of thinking where could things uh, be different 12, 18 or 24 months from now? Suppose, for example, if the topic switches from inflation to recession, right? How, how will that uh, policy response uh, change? Will, will, will the aggressive uh, tightening of monetary policy uh, reduce a little bit? Will there be fiscal stimulus? Will there be some global coordination between central banks regarding FX and foreign currency? These are some of the questions. I'm not saying these will or, or can happen, but these are some of the questions that may kind of flip uh, the the investing equation, if you will, um, in discount rates to think about, well, if we return back to an expansionary uh, monetary regime in a couple of years to, to now fight recessions instead of inflation, uh, this may sound a li little odd current given the current restrictive environment, but if we go into some type of deep recession where stimulus is needed, that may spark the next uh, rally in long duration risk assets there. Um, not saying that's going to happen now or next week, or I'm not giving a timing assessment. I'm just giving like an overall more macro perspective on, on the case of long duration risk assets versus short duration conservative assets uh, and the like there. Great. Thanks for your time today, gentlemen. I think that's all we have. Uh, and thanks for all listeners and subscribers as well. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.